We are in uh, the book of Nehemiah, if you're visiting with us, uh, that's where we are in the Old Testament there, uh, if, you're, if you're visiting with us. Yeah, we're about halfway through this, this book, um, and so if you've got a Bible in front of you, you can uh, crack it open to Nehemiah chapter 7 and chapter 8. And we're going to fly through chapter 7 today and uh, camp out most of our time in chapter 8, and you'll see why when we get there. Um, where we left off last week, the walls of Jerusalem have finally been completed. So the, the, the building project has finished. The walls are finally done. But uh, to be honest, the task of rebuilding is just beginning. It is no longer the walls that need rebuilding, but the people of God themselves. And for Nehemiah, this is a, an altogether new and different kind of building project and much more important than a, than a mere wall. Uh, Nehemiah is going to have to fill some spiritual breaches. He's going to need to give the people a new foundation, a new fortification around them as they move into the future that God has for them. And so the question that we need to start by asking is, is how? How do you go about rebuilding the people of God now that they are in God's place? What is it that, that provides like the bedrock the foundation for the people of God in Jerusalem. What's going what's to bind this ragtag group of suffering Israelites together in this place? And uh, I guess for us today, what is it that is going to be our foundation as a community, as the community of God, the people of God in, in this place? What is it that's going to bind us together in the way a church should be bound together? And so just to, to play my cards early, um, let me just tell you that today we're going to see that we need to be built upon the foundation of God's Word. We need to be built up on the deep, unmovable foundation of God's Word. That's what we're going to be seeing today from Nehemiah 7 and 8. Let's pray first, though. Lord, as always, we just want to stop to recognize uh, you are God and we are not. And what we need more than anything else today is to hear your voice in your word. And so today, Lord, we ask that we would, we would see what it is you have to say to us today, Lord, that we would receive the food that you have for us, the food for our souls. And so would you feed us today from your word, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, we're going to pick it up from the start of chapter 7. So from verse 1, this is what we read. Nehemiah says, Now... When the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. What, uh, what chapter 7 is here to remind us of in the flow of Nehemiah is that a finished wall is not in itself a win. It's great. It's a step forwards for sure, but it's only one step towards the final plan of seeing the people of God reestablished in the city. Uh, and so having finished the walls, Nehemiah, Nehemiah then begins to establish some systems and structures appointing people who can really help the people flourish in the city of Jerusalem. So the first thing he does, we see here, is he sets up gatekeepers to guard the gates. Um, but also he sets up singers and the Levites who are going to lead in temple worship. You know, he, 
He goes out and he finds some chairs that can spin, and he holds some auditions to see who can sing. You know? It's the voice reference, the voice. Um, and he also finds, um, I don't know if they had spinning chairs, it doesn't matter. Um, and he sets up the Levites as well who are going to lead in the, in the worship in the temple. The next thing he does is he appoints his brother, Hanani, uh, who you might actually remember from chapter 1 in the book of Nehemiah. This is his brother who brought him news of the destruction of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah sets him up and gives him charge over Jerusalem because it says he is more faithful and God-fearing than most. He had a sense of God's call in his life, and he lived his life underneath that fear of God, and so that made him a trustworthy man. Verse 3, And I said to them, this is the gatekeepers, he said to the gatekeepers, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. So in other words, like normal, normal practice would be to open the gates at sunrise, and Nehemiah says, no, 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 keep the gates shut until, instead of opening them at six, open them at nine, when everyone's awake and no one can sneak attack us at dawn, right? Like, let's make sure that uh, there's lots of action and uh, keep us safe that way. He's just being shrewd, knowing that there's enemies out there still. And while they were still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. Verse 4 is a key one. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. That verse is important. It gives us a sense of what's actually going on. right? So you've got a wall, no houses. <laughs> It's still a city of rubble. People aren't willing to live in it yet. You know, it's still a ghost town here. And so Nehemiah knows the next task is going to be trying to help people resettle into the city and actually build up the community within the city itself uh, instead of just in the surrounding villages. Verse 5, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by geology. He has a, he's going to plan a census. And I found, he found the book of genealogy of those who had came up at the first. And I found written in it, so he's now quoting this, this old genealogy he found. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. I'm not going to go through the whole chapter 7. The rest of chapter 7 is going to be the list of, is just reciting the genealogy from 95 year, 94 years ago uh, when the first group of exiles came under Zerubbabel. Um, so it's, like an, it's an old list. It's basically word for word, copied, copy-pasted from Ezra. So they've just taken the list from Ezra, and uh, Nehemiah found this list and said, well, here's the, here's the 50,000 people that came back uh, about 100 years ago with Zerubbabel. I'm not going to go through the list. Verse uh, 73, though, the very last verse, gives us the setup for our time in verse in chapter 8, what happens next. So, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, you know, the guys that won the voice, um, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seven, seventh month had come, and that's important, we'll get there later, the seventh month, it says the people of Israel were in their towns. Where were they? <laughs> Not in the city. They're in their towns. They're in the surrounding regions of Jerusalem. That's where we are at at the start, at the start of chapter 8. 
um, which leads us into chapter 8. Before I, before I read the first verse, I just need to say, chapter 8 was, for me, the reason that I campaigned hard against Matt, not against Matt, with Matt, um, to, 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 to do the book of Nehemiah. This is the chapter that I got super excited about and was like, man, this is going to be an awesome chapter of the Bible to, to bring to our church. And so here we are, chapter 8. I've been looking forward to this the whole time. What we're going to see first is that if the Word of God is going to be our foundation, if it is going to be the center of our lives, we need to revere it. It needs to be revered among us and in our own lives. And this is what we see at the start of this chapter. It says, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So maybe... We don't know numbers, but maybe in the order of 50,000-odd people, capacity of Suncorp Stadium, gathered into this place. And it says, they told Ezra, they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. This is the first time we see Ezra mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. He's, he's been around this whole time. He's a Bible teacher. He's led kind of... Um, a spiritual renewal movement already in the book of Ezra, but he's been around this whole time. This is the first time we see him. But notice what's happening here. It says it's the people telling Ezra, go get the book. Go get the book of the law of Moses. We need to hear from God now. Now, Ezra, we love you. You're great. You've been around teaching us all this time, but we don't need just another pep talk from you, mate. Go get the book. We need to hear the book. We need to hear from the Lord himself. If the day ever comes when Matt and I get hit by a bus, which is possible because we're with each other sometimes, crossing, cr crossing that road where there's buses, um, and the next guy comes in and he doesn't open up the book, you tell him what they told Ezra. Mate, go get the book. <laughs> go get the book. Open up the book. We need to hear from the book. We want to hear from the Lord himself. We need the voice of God to be heard. And so Ezra, he, he obliges, right? Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So who's there? Men? Women? Everyone who could understand. Who do you think he's talking about there? I think he's talking about the, like the older kids. They're not men, they're not women, but they, they, can, they can understand. They're old enough to understand. And so I think it's, I know they're all out in the box for today, but uh, for, those, for those that are here, adults, give me a moment to talk to the kids, those who are old enough to understand. What the Bible has just said is you're not an adult yet. Yes, that's true. But if you're old enough to understand, you're old enough to hear the word of God for yourself. Not just hear someone tell you, but you're old enough to hear it yourself. You're old enough to pray, old enough to open up the Bible and read it for yourself. You're old enough to respond to the Lord. And so I think it's really good that you're here and you're hearing a message like this today because it's God's call on you to pay attention to what he's saying to you. Our God is a good father. And he loves his kids. And he loves kids. So it's good that you're here. There is a place for you in this church and in this people of God. We're so glad you're here. The men and the women and all that could understand are here to listen to Ezra. What does Ezra say? 
What does it say next? Verse 3. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and all those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So maybe six o'clock until midday, these guys are reading the Old Testament law. I never want to hear another complaint about a long sermon ever again. <laughs> we, don't, I don't get, we don't get many of those. Do you get many of those, Matt? It's just mainly from me, hey, yeah. Um, so next time Matt's preaching a long sermon, just think about this. Five or six hours, standing in the Middle Eastern sun, standing up as well as the Word of God is read. They're not even teaching at this stage. They're just reading it, and everyone is listening, and everyone, it says, they're paying attention. <laughs> they're attentive to the Word of God. Um, no one's asking them to hurry up. It just says they're all, they're all treasuring what they're hearing because they're hearing from the Lord. And so there's a, there's a, there's a reverence there. People revered the word. They needed it. They hungered for it. They knew that this is, what, this is the best thing they could be doing with their life right now in this moment. It's just standing in the sun, listening to what Nehemiah had to say. Not Nehemiah, sorry, Ezra. What the word of God through Ezra had to say. And so they, they knew they needed to come underneath it together as a community. And so church, Anogra, let us continue to be a people that revere the word of God and revere the teaching of the word of God and the reading of the word of God. Let's revere that. Let's continue to desire to come underneath it together. What are we going to see next? When we begin to rebuild our life on the Word of God, as we revere it, it actually begins to do something in us. It begins to spark worship in us. Look at what happens. Verse 8, verse 4, I should say. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. So they get him nice and high, so that everyone can hear. And beside him stood these 13 guys. <laughs> Cheating. Cheating, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was proud of that one. Um, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. The reverence. Do you see the reverence there? All the people, they're standing to hear. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. This is not a Baptist church, apparently. <laughs> they bowed their heads and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The people respond to the reading of the word with sincere worship. They respond to God. They respond to him. Bowed heads, head, hands raised, faces on the ground, right? There's, there's no synth in the background. There's no air con. There's no box fort to take all the kids out of the room so we can have some quiet space. They're standing in a broken city, and yet the word of God has come. And so they respond in worship. They respond in worship. Why? Because they feel the weight of what it is they're hearing. They're hearing from their God. And they feel conviction. And so they not only stand, but they fall to their knees as well. Friends, I think it has become a tragedy in many churches 
that churches have divided themselves, really, into two unbiblical categories. On the one hand, you've got, you know, either you're a word-focused church, and uh, those churches, you know, sometimes fail to respond to the Lord in worship. On the other hand, you've got more expressive churches over here that often fail to properly teach the Word of God. What a tragedy that we must feel like we must choose which one we must be. These two things are in no way mutually exclusive. They're definitely not mutually exclusive here. These people, they revered the Word of God. They revered the Word of God. But what do they do? They say amen. (laughs) They have their hands up and their faces on the ground. This is visible response to the word of God right now. And so, to be honest, I think think we could grow in this a little bit. Our responding to the word of God. Visibly. We can't all, you know, we can't rely on Michael Wakeling for for everything. (laughs) I see that hand, Elodie. Um, You know, 1 Timothy chapter 2 commands, particularly the men, to raise their hands in prayer. That's a command of Scripture. And I think the preaching will probably get a little bit better if there were some amens. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's what should get better from now on. Amen. <laughs> Thanks, sister. Um, look, R.C. Sproul, it was R.C. Sproul that said that theology... It's a proper understanding of God, learning about God, proper theology, must lead us to doxology, which is worship. We don't learn about God. We don't open up the Bible for the Bible's sake. We learn about it to receive, to see Christ, to hear from our God, not just to learn facts. And so theology, properly done, must lead us into worship, must lead us into worship. Otherwise, we've missed it entirely. And so I would love it if we would begin to start confounding those two categories and actually be a people of the word and of of the heart. Both the head and the heart. Let's do both, guys. Let's respond to our God in worship. I'd love for new people to walk in this door and be confused about which church we are, right, as they try and place us. And we're just like, we're just going to confound them because, hey, we can do both. The Bible says we should do both. Let's try to do both. Let's really try to do both. Right, so let's let's revere the word of God, but let's respond in worship to our God. And also, can I just say, don't worry about everyone else. Like that's the that's the thing, right? It's what about what people think? Who cares what they think? This is between you and your God. So worship your God. Don't worry about everyone else. Verse seven. Also, Jeshua. But these thir- these next thirteen guys, um, I counted them ahead of time. Don't you worry. Uh, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is just a great little point for um, like Bible teaching. right? They're going around, they're having little spontaneous Bible studies around the place to help people understand what it's actually saying. That's kind of what I'm trying to do now. I'm trying to help you get to see what, what, what these words are trying to say to you specifically. They're going around helping unpack everything um, that they've just read together. But as they're reading, 
And as they're coming underneath the Word of God together over these hours, and as they begin to get a sense of what the Lord is actually saying to them, something, something begins to happen. As they're reading, something happens. As they listen to all it is that God has commanded them to be doing, they begin to see how far they've fallen. It's like looking into a mirror, right? They begin to see themselves clearly the way God sees them. And they begin to realize the gulf that exists between the commands of God and what they've been doing with their lives. <laughs> it's hard. As they see their failures with this, this new kind of clarity, it actually begins to break them. We see in verse 9, it says, All the people wept as they heard the Lord, words of the law. People are weeping. And these aren't the tears that some of us cry when Matt and I preach a bad sermon, right? This is, this is conviction of sin. You're feeling the weight of conviction. Conviction is what the Holy Spirit brings, not Satan. It's what the Holy Spirit brings on us when the Word of God is read or when we're reading it ourselves and we begin to feel the Lord pushing on us, that we need to repent. This is what the Word of God does. It cuts us. Hebrews 4 verse 12 tells us the Word of God is living and active. It's alive. They're not dead words on a page. It's living. It's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, there's a real, real sense in which when we, when we come underneath the Bible honestly, sincerely, humbly, we will find it actually begins to cut us. It begins to open us up at the very deepest level. How deep? Between joints and marrow, soul and spirit, right as, as deep as you can get, it begins to open us up. Not, not, it doesn't cut us in the way that a sword cuts a soldier in battle, but the way a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon opens up someone who needs surgery. Friends, the Bible is not a dead book. It's living and active. And as we come underneath it, it opens us up. It opens us up right down deep, right where we need healing the most. Right where we need healing the most. And so it, everyone that's experienced this knows it is a, it's a hard thing to come underneath the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It is the best thing to come underneath the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's hard, but it is good and necessary because it leads us into life. It's how we know the Lord is speaking to us. So an open book when we open the book, it's going to bring sorrow over our sin. As we see ourselves clearly, we hear the voice of God calling us away from our sin, and that's good, and that is right. But look what happens next. Verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to your Lord, your God. This is a holy moment. This is a holy moment as the people are crying over their sin and they're feeling the weight of, of their failure. They get up and they say, guys, this is a holy moment. 
do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then, they, then he said to them, go your way, everyone go home. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. <laughs> and send portions to anyone who has, has nothing. For this day is holy to our God. Do not be grieved. For the Lord, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink, and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Guys, three times, Ezra and Nehemiah has to stop everything and go, guys, stop, stop grieving. Stop weeping. It's time for a party. The best wine, the best food, send food to everyone that doesn't have any, right? No one's missing out. This is a holy day. So we must mark it properly. Why do they need to be told that? Many be told to stop grieving because they were so blinded by their grief over their sin that they failed to see what God was calling them into next. So they were sitting in their sorrow and in their despair and their woe is me, I've stuffed it up again. And they were sitting there weeping. And Ezra has to get up and be like, no guys, listen, it's not good for you to stay there. It's good if that's right, but it's not good for you to stay in that grieving. They could not see the wonder of God's grace that God was trying to give to them. They could not see it. And so they're stuck in limbo land of just grief, despair over their sin. <laughs> and Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to call them out of it. And, uh, John Piper pointed out uh, that you know, weeping, it is a proper response to sin. If we're underneath the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we will feel that sorrow. But it's not good if it lingers too long. Genuinely, that's what we're seeing in, in, in Nehemiah 8, isn't it? So can I just say, if, if you're here and you feel like you are still paralyzed by past sin that you've given over to the Lord over years or months, and you feel like it still has this hold over you, it doesn't need to. Have you given it to the Lord? If you have then hear the words of Nehemiah and Nehemiah. It's time to stop grieving. It's time to stop weeping. In fact, it's time for a party because this is holy. It's a holy thing to repent. It's a holy thing to receive grace. We don't sit forever in our grief. I said earlier that the, that the fact that it's the seventh month, it's the first day of the seventh month is a significant thing. At this time of year, it is the it is the first day of the Feast of Trumpets, uh, which, which opens the, the week-long party of the Feast of Booths, uh, which leads into Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, where the people would confess their sins. They would slaughter a lamb in their place for their sins. God had made a way for them to receive forgiveness through this through this ritual. Today, friends, we have a lamb who has taken away the sin of the world. 
sacrifice for us on our behalf, God has made a way for us to be reconciled, washed clean. And so if you feel deep, 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 ongoing, lingering despair over your sin, over things that have been on your shoulders for a long time, listen to what this is saying. Do not go on grieving. This is holy. It's a holy thing. It's a holy joy the Lord is trying to give to us. If if you're always repenting without any kind of tangible sense of God's forgiveness for you in the cross, of course you're going to be stuck in that place of despair. Grab hold of what it is that God is giving you. Grief over sin is good. Tears are good. Sorrow is good. Penitence is good. But not if that's all there is. Friends, sorrow must be a temporary stop on the road of repentance. It's not the destination. It's a temporary stop on the true journey. Where are we going? What's the destination? Where is God trying to take us? It's not not just a sorrow. That's a stop. He's trying to take us into joy and gladness over the wonderful gift we've received. That's, That's his aim. Why do you think that's true? Why do you think God wants us not to live in sorrow but to live in joy? It brings him way more glory, guys. (laughs) A cowering, despairing people does not bring him glory like a radiantly joyful people does. People who are alive with joy because of the gift they've been given. They know the depth of the amazing grace they've received in Christ, and so they are alive with joy. That's what God's trying to give to us. That's why this chapter is in the Bible. God wants to give us that joy. And friends, it is God's joy to give you that joy. It's God's joy to forgive you your sin. That's what Hebrews 12.2 tells us. Hebrews 12.2 tells us it is for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus endured the cross because of joy. Obviously, not because of the joy of being crucified. That's clear right? No, it was the joy that was on the other side of the crucifixion. The joy that was on the other side of the crucifixion. What is that joy? What was the joy on the other side of the crucifixion? The joy of giving you joy. The joy of rescuing you from your sin. The joy of welcoming sinners and sufferers into his family forever. That was the joy. Friends, it is Jesus' joy to rescue us from our sin. And so stop weeping for your sin. Stop despairing of yourself. Lift up your eyes and see your Savior. Receive that grace. And be joyful. Be joyful for Jesus' sake. Be joyful in your salvation. Verse 10 tells us, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of of the Lord is your strength. The Hebrew word here for strength Uh, This is the only time that it gets translated as strength. Everywhere else, it gets translated as different things. For example, most of the time, it's translated as stronghold or refuge or fortress, that kind of idea. This is the only time it gets translated as strength, which is curious. Um, So, do not be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your stronghold. It is your fortress. The joy of the Lord is your fortress. It's your refuge. It's where you run to. It's where you run to for safety. It's where you you hide. The joy of the Lord is a safe place, friends. Do not be trapped by false guilt. 
Run to the joy of the Lord. It is your strength. It is your stronghold. One last, one last piece. Two last pieces, I think. We'll see. What we're seeing here is the, is a real, is the spiritual dynamic, the, the life, the, hmm, how do I say that? The dynamic of spiritual life is how I've got it written down. The dynamic of spiritual life. The word of the Lord comes. Brings sorrow for our sin as we, as we begin to sit underneath it and feel it. The Lord calls us out of that sorrow into joy. Finally, that joy leads us into obedience to God. It doesn't go word obedience. It doesn't go word sorrow. It doesn't go, like it, it, do you see each, each of these pieces are really important. If you take out one, all of a sudden you've got a dysfunctional Christianity. And there's we could probably have a bit of discussion in small groups about what each of those would look like in our lives. There you go, small group leaders. That one's for free. We need each of these. We need an open book. We need to receive what the Bible is actually trying to tell us, to call us into. We need to then receive the joy of our salvation. And then that joy leads us into joyful obedience. This is what we're going to see next from verse 13 onwards to the end of the chapter. On the second day, the heads, so this is the day after that big Bible reading session and the weeping and the celebration, the next day after that you know, landmark day for them, the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. So basically all the dads get together the next day, and they go, Ezra, that was great, but we need more. Help us. What do we need to be doing? And they, and they begin to have another Bible study with Ezra. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seven months and that they should proclaim it and publish it in their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And by, day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. The feast, the festival of booths. And when I say that, I'm sure you're all like, ah, yes, I know exactly what that is. I think about that all the time. Um, I definitely know what you're talking about, Mike. This is a festival about remembering God's miraculous delivery from Egypt. Particularly, particularly, it's focusing in on that season when they were in the desert and God was miraculously providing for them water from a rock, bread from heaven. 
God was looking after them in the desert. And so it's a festival remembering the provision of God. And what they were doing is that they used to make booths when they're out in the desert. And so Moses said, hey, every year, go camping, basically. Go make yourself a little, a little booth. Go make yourself a little temporary booth. You're not allowed to live in your house for seven days or however long it was. No living in your house. Get out of the house. Go camping once a, once a year, basically. So you campers, you ought to love the festival of booths. But it's about remembering. Remember how we did this? And the Lord looked after us. It's about the provision of God that, um, that, the, that they were remembering and celebrating. And so they went and did that. It says that they, they read in the Bible that they should be doing the Festival of Booths, and they went, well, let's go do the Festival of Booths then. And it says that they were greatly rejoicing as they did that. Greatly rejoicing in their hearts. Their hearts were so full of joy because they knew that they were standing right in the middle of God's will for their lives. That's a beautiful thing. It's a special kind of blessing, special kind of joy that comes into the life of a child of God when you know for a fact you are standing right where God would have you. You're walking right in the will of God. Obeying God can be hard, but friends, it is a source of joy for the child of God. I see this every time we baptize someone at this church. I say this to them every time as well. I say there's a lot of joy that comes from knowing that the Lord would have you nowhere else but in that tank. That's where he wants you. It's a beautiful thing. Friends, you can have that. You can have that joy. You can have that joy of walking in the will of the Lord. How? Well, Starts by building your life on the Word of God, seeing His commands, following them. Right? We we revere the Word of God. We get the Bible open, we revere it. We let it spark worship. We let it spark worship. We let it cut us and reveal our sin. And then we receive the joy that comes on the other side of that sorrow, the joy of our salvation in Christ. Let me just finish with this, because I think this is important to to finish on as we think about the Festival of Booths. In in the Gospels, in John 7, Jesus goes to the Festival of Booths. He goes up to Jerusalem during the Festival of Booths. Go read it for yourself, chapter 7 of John. And it says, On the last day of the feast... You know, as they spent this whole week celebrating God's provision for them, how God had given them water out of a rock, manna from heaven, and been, that's what they've been celebrating. And here is the Son of God among them. <laughs> On that last day, he goes up to Jerusalem, and he stands up, and it says he cries out. If anyone is thirsty, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You know, the Festival of Booze is a great thing. It's a beautiful celebration of God's provision. We don't need to do it anymore. Do you know that? We have its fulfillment in Christ. You know, just like Moses struck the rock and water poured out, quenching the thirst of the whole nation of Israel. 
So too, Jesus was struck on the cross. Out of his side came blood and water, that which would cleanse us, wash us clean, quench our thirst, our spiritual thirst. So let me just finish with these words from Jesus. If anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would show us what it means to build our lives on the word of God. Lord, would, we, would you grow in our hearts a sense of reverence for your word? Lord, we've got such access to your word that we've become... It's hard to keep in our minds just the precious nature of what it is we have in our hands. Help us revere your word. Would it not seem crazy to us that people would stand for six hours in the sun to hear it? Lord, help us in our own lives to get the book open, to sit underneath it in our own lives, Lord, not just on a Sunday. Help us get the book open and hear your voice in your word. And Lord, would that, would that time, Lord, would it spark worship in us? Would we receive it with gladness, Lord, but would it remind us of your goodness? And would, Lord, would you help us to worship you? Help us to worship you. Lord, we want to grow in that. You know, we know that the great commandment, the greatest commandment in the Old Testament, Lord, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, Lord. That's a hard thing to do. That's, that's all of us. And so today I pray that you'd help us to love you in that way, to worship you in that way, with everything we have. And Lord, would you never cease to bring your holy conviction upon us? We never want to get to a place where we are unwilling to hear your word, where we are unwilling to become face, uh, be brought face to face with our sin. Keep us humble. Lord, and speak to us. Bring your conviction, Lord, right now on those that, that need it. Lord, would you lead us into repentance? For our, for our joy's sake. And Lord, lead us into joy. I pray for those, those of us here today who, who feel trapped by sorrow, perpetual sorrow, Lord. Over years and months of, of repentance, Lord, still feeling bound by sorrow, Lord. Lord, for those people, would you help them put down, put down that sorrow. Lord, to lift up their eyes off themselves unto you.
give them the gift of joy. They hear these words, Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your stronghold, is your safe place. Lord, would you help them run to that safe place, Lord? And finally, Lord, lead us into lead us into obedience. Lead us into joyful obedience, Lord. Help us receive the blessing that it is to walk in your ways, to love you and be loved by you. Lord, we thank you for this chapter of, of your word, uh, which speaks to us so clearly of, of just how good you are and how good it is to follow you and the blessings that await us. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for these things, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that rivers of living water would indeed be flowing out of us. Yeah. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.